Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. With over 17,000 described species of butterflies around the world, there's a lot to love. Today, it's all about the pandas of the sky, how climate change is impacting these marvelous insects, and what people are doing to help save them. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Historically, cultures have looked to nature and observed the behavior of animals, plants, the environment, and even the weather as a way of understanding their place in the world. The butterfly is no exception. There's a common theme in folklore and mythology when it comes to the symbolism of the butterfly. From the Aztecs to the Romans and Greeks, the butterfly is the equivalent of the human soul. Indeed, the Greek word for butterfly is psyche, which translates to soul. In the Christian interpretation, it goes a step further, and the life cycle of the butterfly, which includes a metamorphosis from a caterpillar to a winged angel, as my guest Katie Prudick described it, represents spiritual transformation. Regardless of the mythology, symbolism, or cultural significance, one thing is clear. People have and continue to be enamored with butterflies. Interestingly, I'm captivated by dragonflies, another insect rich in symbolism. However, I do enjoy watching butterflies and recently saw a butterfly become the victim of a honeybee. I was watching a lovely butterfly devour breakfast on a little flower when out of nowhere, like a bomber, like a B-52 bomber, this honeybee zapped the butterfly in the rear end of its abdomen. You can see the video in the show notes. Honeybees are pretty darn territorial over their flowers, and I felt bad for the unsuspecting butterfly who was jolted out of its sweet nectar reverie. Okay, on to the show. As I mentioned today, it's all about the pandas of the sky. And in honor of this episode, I had my friend and artist extraordinaire, Chris Hookah, bring my weird and wacky vision to life once again. You can see the art for this episode in the show notes on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. And you can also check out the show notes on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. And check out Chris's art at chrishookadoodles.com. All right, let's get to my guest, Katie Prudick, Assistant Professor of Data and Citizen Science in the School of Natural Resources and the Environment at the University of Arizona. I'm lucky enough to call her a friend and colleague. Uh, Katie Prudick, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. 
Oh, Jennifer, thank you so much for this invitation. I'm excited to be here. I, I am really thrilled to talk to you because not only about your research and butterflies uh, and, and how they're being impacted, but also how you're leveraging the participation of everyday people uh, in their communities to help. Uh, before we start talking about all of that exciting um, stuff, I have a question I like to ask everyone. You know, I called this podcast Wild Connection, and, and that's because I'm really interested in our connection with other species and nature. And so I'm wondering if you have a special way of feeling connected to nature. I think, you know, for me, nature is always a respite. It is uh, where I go to sort of collect myself and, and relax. And yeah, and so to connect with nature, I just watch. I sit and I look and I see who's out there and see what they're doing. It's sort of like gossip girls for for mm. plants and butterflies and and birds and mammals. Um, I just like to know what they're up to and, and how they perceive the world and what seems to be important to them. I, I like that. And, you know, it's interesting. So many uh, of my guests have said very much the same thing where sort of being a voyeur and, and peeping Tom, so to speak, on other species is something that they really enjoy doing and, and learning what they're up to and what they care about. Um, speaking of what we care about, you know, I know you are uh, an expert in citizen and data science, but I also know that you're pretty passionate about insects. So, and, and maybe butterflies in particular, I'm not sure. Tell us sort of what got you interested in, in insects and butterflies and in this kind of career path. Yeah, that was sort of a serendipitous uh, path to get to butterflies. So I grew up in Northern Nevada um, and I was committed to being a marine biologist uh, as a uh, teenager and thought that that was going to be my path when I got to college. I took a class at Cornell's Marine Lab. Um, I was given a scholarship in my sophomore year at a junior college in Sacramento. And when I went out there, I discovered I get horribly seasick. I mean, just like <laughs> even the thought of like looking at the ocean just makes me nauseous. Um, and so after a summer of, of doing all of that. <laughs> it's hard to be a marine biologist if you're yeah. sick all the time. All the time. Even in the intertidal, it was just embarrassing. It was like, I was just standing in the in the intertidal. And I'm like, oh, I don't feel well. Um, so that, that sort of ixnade that. And then uh, I was just chatting with my dad. My dad is a groundwater hydrologist uh, or was with the US Geological Survey. And he had some buddies over in uh, the Sacramento area. He goes, Oh, they work at UC Davis. You should go talk to them. They do cool stuff. And they were veterinary people. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I went over and they, uh, gave me a tour and things like that. And they're like, Oh, you've got to go see this professor's office. It's crazy. And, um, <laughs> and so we went and toured this professor's office and, and his name was Art Shapiro and Art's office is notorious on campus for having all sorts of cool, just, articles and books and like it's just like this this um carnival of of knowledge there um and totally disorganized at least to the uh, casual observer um it's completely organized in art's mind um but uh grace ended uh, my host ended up um introducing me to art and art started asking me questions and i was you know a sophomore in college so i knew nothing um 
pretty much. But uh, Art was looking for a field help. And he's like, what would you like to come out and collect butterflies with me? And I'm like, sure, that sounds great and get paid for it. Mm -hmm. Um, Live in the dream there. And so I went out to like the high meadows of the Sierra Nevadas uh, and chased butterflies and sort of fell in love with them. Uh, it could have been like the the environment because, you know, the Sierras are beautiful. It could have been the bugs because they're super cool. They don't make me seasick. Um, <laughs> they're fun to catch. And you can kind of like um, pop them in a in a little envelope and put them in your pocket. Um, a lot easier than like a great white shark, right? Sure. That might pocket. not end well if you put your a great white shark in your pocket. <laughs> no, no. Um even a sponge, it's not going to go well, uh, long term. So, uh, yeah. Um, and they're just, they're really cool animals and the way they, you know, move in the world and, and what they think about and what they, they, you know, how they behave. And, and of course you got the wing patterns, which are just like these flying postcards of, of information. So, yeah. That's what a lovely story. And and it's interesting because I connected with you, uh, as you were telling that story, you know, you feeling seasick anywhere near water. And I initially wanted to thought I wanted to be a veterinarian and I kept passing out. So speaking of embarrassing, I can't, I was like a fainting goat. Uh, essentially in the vet's office where I worked and not for the, what the obvious thing, like maybe blood, that was fine. Surgery is not a problem, but odors got me. Oh, and, and they got me bad to the point where I slid down the wall several times, managing to be uninjured, collapsing in front of a room full of vet techs and veterinarians. And my 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 boss veterinarian pulled me aside one day and said, I, I got to be honest, like this isn't even the worst of what you're going to see or smell. So you might want to rethink. Might want to recalculate. <laughs> I did recalculate, but it, quite embarrassing as well to just pass out and need to be awakened with the, you know, smelling. Smelling salt. salts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's, it's awkward with everybody peering at you. Like, yes. You- you're right. <laughs> Your eyes open and you don't know why am I on the floor? And uh, so, you know, I can relate to having to pivot and then having a, an unexpected or serendipitous kind of moment that creates a new passion. So um, and now I'm also thinking about how you put butterflies in envelopes and in your pocket. So speaking of butterflies, you know, part of your work now with them and maybe, you know, for a while has been tracking, you know, where they live and, and how that might be changing. What are some of the things, because you mentioned you got interested in what butterflies care about or need. So what are some of the things that they need or care about that help determine where they live and where we find them? Yeah. So, um, some things for most insects is they have to have, um, the right food, probably most animals is is something you want to think about. Um, and for for butterflies in particular, there's sort of two things they eat. Um, uh, they split up their life cycle. So caterpillars eat plants, the leaves of plants usually, but sometimes the seeds or or the flowers or or the roots, depending on who they are. Uh, and then they go from this this chewing life cycle to a to a sucking. Uh, strategy for for consuming food, and so they have this straw, a proboscis, as an adult, 
where they uh, were able to suck up nectar and feed primarily on nectar. There are a few species out there who will uh, suck up fruits. So they will be fruit feeders. Oh, okay. Um, and then there's other ones who will uh, eat pollen. Uh, the pollen eaters have longer life cycles or lifespans, sorry. Um, and uh, yeah, and so, so those are kind of the two things is they need food when they're young as caterpillars and then food when they're reproductive adults as butterflies. Okay. Um, so those are big things. The, uh, of course, you know, uh, the other things that influence whether they'll be in a place or not is their ability to deal with the temperature changes that are in that habitat. Um, and so temperature and, and, and water are kind of related in a world of an insect. Um, insects have a hard time dealing with extreme heat uh, just because they're um, ectotherms. Uh, and so they don't do quite as well. Uh, they tend to dehydrate and things in, in certain situations. So, so that's kind of be kind of a problem if the humidity is low and the temperature is high. Right. And so um, by, by exotherm, it's because they regulate their body temperature based on the environment, not internally, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So, so in, you know, external sort of, uh, dependence on, on temperature much more than you and I have as an endotherm. Right. Okay. And so, so and then got, the next thing that yeah. they have to worry about, you ready for this? So it's three things. It's like okay. food, temperature slash humidity, uh, and then, um, things that like to eat them. So oh. yes, yes. You want to think of caterpillars as nature's hot dogs. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's great. It's a great illustration. Just had an image. I just had an image. Just like a little mustard on them, a little ketchup. <laughs> Maybe you're a sauerkraut person on your hot dog. I don't know. Um, but, but you know, they're eggs with legs. So caterpillars are just acquiring all these nutrients for this transformation to be an adult insect. So that, that metamorphosis is an incredible biological feat. One, it's like a second embryogenesis. It's like, let's melt our entire body down, basically. Well, we'll leave the brain and the gonads and the wings, mm -hmm. what will become the wings, but everything else degrades and gets reorganized. And that takes a lot of energy. So, so caterpillars in particular are just little little mouth parts to collect energy from, from the plants that will then you know help them transition into this, this magical winged state. I like to call them insects, angels, little tiny <laughs> angels, because <laughs> they get their wings. Right. Oh, yeah, that's true. But I imagine when they're these mouth-eating machines to get energy, that makes them really attractive to other things who need energy. Right. So birds, mammals, um, other insects, it's, you know, all these predators are just like, this is a fat-filled, tasty treat. If you've ever, you know, had the pleasure of eating many of the caterpillars, it's sort of like eating scrambled eggs. Um, it's okay. it's very similar. To I'm that, never going to eat scrambled eggs again the same way. <laughs> but even like fattier and creamier. So it's like really like you know, if you were to go to France and get scrambled right. eggs, where they put a lot of cream in there. Mm, okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah. so they so how do they? So now this makes me wonder, how do they figure out, I mean, they're a caterpillar, you know, so, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not sure how much is going on in there, in their brain, 
but I mean, no offense to them. Right. But yeah, like, no, I know. but how do they, how do they figure out where it's safe to be and where it's not safe to be? If this is one of the things that is really important to where we find them. Yeah. So, so they're living on their host plant. Um, many caterpillars have like a limited suite of plants they can eat. Um, and that's because plants have developed these chemical and physical defenses against being eaten by insects. Um, and so you want to think a caterpillar is sort of based on where its mother laid the egg. The mom is using olfactory and visual cues to decide whether this host plant is acceptable. Um, and remember their olfactory uh, sensitivity is in their feet or their antenna. So if you see a, a butterfly on a plant, like doing a little dance with its front legs, it's actually mm. smelling or tasting the plant. So it's like, it's got little tongues on its feet. Okay. Um, and then a caterpillar is looking at olfactory cues. So it, it's cueing into a plant's um, volatile signals or um, airborne signals, uh, a plant when it's being eaten will change its chemistry to bring in uh, predators and parasitoids to eat the plant okay. or eat the caterpillar. Um, and so the caterpillar is trying to assess those and maybe go to a different part of the plant. Sometimes they'll build um, little uh, houses out of plant material and silk and vomit. Um <laughs> to, you know, fold up a leaf and sort of live in there. You've probably right. seen that. Yeah. And that's to protect them against predators or parasitoids, or maybe make it slightly more, um, uh, environmentally, uh, um, like cooler for them or warmer. Right. Uh, so those are the things that it's paying attention to. It will also pay attention to sound. Uh, there's this great paper done by Mary Rothschild, uh, in the seventies, I believe seventies or eighties, where she looked at, um, the caterpillar's response to uh, the Royal Air Force planes flying overhead. Oh, wow. And they would go into defensive posture uh, based on, on that sound, um, which they thought was a similar frequency to uh, a wasp or something or a, um, a fly that would eat, eat um, caterpillars. Oh, so, so, wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wait, I just have to, I just have to say that I'm starting to grasp at a much deeper level, this, this, passion for, for butterflies, because now we like just in the last few minutes, I've learned that they smell through their feet, that they can hear planes overhead, mm -hmm. um, and that they build houses with a lot of raw materials, including a little bit of vomit. And this is not what I thought at all when I think about a caterpillar or when I see a caterpillar. And that's now excluding this massive transformation that turns them into insect angels. Um, so, so when they, so the, it sounds like the caterpillar really is very attuned to its local environment and kind of what's happening around it. Does that change at all when they transform into a mature butterfly is the, the sort of, their sensitivity to the environment at a larger scale? Yeah, I think they, uh, you know, when you look at the sort of neurodevelopment between um, uh, caterpillar to, to adult, 
um, they change where those neurons are. They, they, they might get, for example, the adult butterfly has a lot more visual uh, capacity than the caterpillar. So what we talked about in a caterpillar, you know, it was paying attention to sound and to, to smells. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not great vision. They don't have really great eyeballs, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't come until they're caterpillar or uh, butterflies. And as butterflies, they have incredible eyesight. Um, they can see more than we can in terms of the visual spectrum. So they can see in UV um, and polarized light. So, you know, when you have polarized sunglasses, um, you can see the uh, polarized light as a cue, mm-hmm. but without that, you can't. But butterflies automatically have basically polarized sunglasses on their face. So they're superheroes too. So they're superheroes, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, so I would say that, that adult you know, butterflies are better in the visual modality. And you'll see that, um, you know, they have these crazy wing patterns, right? That they're mm-hmm. using for sexual signaling. They're also signaling to predators. They've got to be able to find flowers and host plants and mates. And so they've, they're usually using the visual modality much more than the caterpillars. Okay. That's not to say that they're not attending to volatile s- signals, they mm-hmm. still do that. You can watch a female butterfly, especially in the field, and she will like be flying around, flying around, and suddenly she gets the scent of a host plant, and she'll just like instead of doing these like lazy circles or whatever, she's like a direct line to that host plant. It's really fun to watch. Yeah, um, where suddenly she got that that the right wind or or air current in her face, and she's like or feet, and she's like, yes, I'm there. Right. Well, most of us, when we get wind in our face, don't respond that way, but good to, <laughs> good to know. So I couldn't yeah. resist. I couldn't resist. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> I understand. But yeah, so, so butterflies, adults see better than caterpillars, but otherwise, yeah. Okay. They're, they're attending to similar signals. So it, it sounds like butterflies in general are pretty sensitive to their environment, whether they're in the caterpillar or the, the butterfly phase or the, you know, the mature phase, the flight, the winged flight phase, as you said. Um, are there some things that we're doing as humans that are impacting them at these at the level that that of the things that they care about? Yeah. I mean, I think it's good to remember that humans (laughs) are an animal as well. And we impact other, all other organisms in one way or another, some of them we help and some of them we hurt. And the same is true for butterflies. Okay. So some of our, you know, uh, butterflies are doing much better with sort of commensal with, with human, um, behaviors and, um, other ones aren't doing as well. And I think we might be hitting a switch recently with, with, you know, rapid changes in climate where, you know, all butterflies might be taking a hit more so than they have in the past. Okay. So, so there's ones that are doing less bad than others. And those include things like land use change. So it turns out paving over a meadow where the butterflies host plants and nectar plants used to live. Not great. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, Home depots are, are, you know, not great for butterflies. Um, also, um, pesticide and herbicide usage mm-hmm. is a problem and sort of the longevity of those can be a problem, right? Okay. So they may persist in the environment for a long time. Um, you know, our cars aren't great for butterflies, uh, roadways, things like that. Um, like any animal, there's a lot of roadkill. 
Right. Now, um, I know for some yeah. insects, uh, sorry to jump in, but I know for yeah. some insects, you know, a paved road, uh, but, uh, with, with a reflection that looks like water creates sort of a, a mismatch or, or a misidentification of a, an appropriate place to lay your eggs. And I, I know butterflies don't lay their eggs in water, but is there anything that we're also doing that creates this kind of cross signal, I guess, for some butterflies where they're maybe laying their eggs in a, in the wrong place. Yeah, I think that happens with um, host plants more than anything. So sometimes we have horticulture host plants, which are um, less ideal, at least for now for butterflies. So what we plant can be really important. And, you know, so for example, let's take the monarch butterfly. There is this uh, milkweed, which is really popular. It's Sclepius curasavica. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a common one that you get like at, um, your, you know, your big nursery, uh, and it's the tropical milkweed It grows mostly, you know, as an annual over most of the United States, but also as a perennial in sort of the warmer places like Florida and Texas and, um, uh, Cal- Southern California, uh, that plant, the monarchs use quite a bit, but the trade-off with that is that the, um, caterpillars are and the adults then are more susceptible to disease. Mm, okay. So, so yeah, so it's not a great, so it's almost like a sink um, for the population. So, so everybody goes there, lays a bunch of eggs, uh, but there's higher mortality. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit more later about the monarch and how, um, you know, why they're so popular and, and even why people might go out and buy a lot of milkweed thinking they're doing a great thing, but it, it could be that they're, not planting the ideal, uh, milkweed for, for these butterflies. Um, but before I, I, we get to that, I I just kind of want to circle back and talk about, you know, uh, how you talked about climate change is, uh, really now maybe impacting lots of butterflies in, in a, in a negative way. And I think, you know, many people think about climate change as this big thing that's happening globally. And, and that, is certainly true, but what does climate change look like at a local scale, at a scale of a butterfly? Yeah, I think there are two things to climate change that that really affect butterflies at a local level. One is, are the temperatures and humidity in general now livable for Mm -hmm. that butterfly and caterpillar in particular? Because caterpillars can't fly so they can't modulate their, they can't run away to a better, better place as easily. Um, they kind of crawl around a plant to try to find little places that are cooler. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll hide in flowers or underneath leaves or places like that when it gets really hot. Um, however, like they're really trying um, to be in a certain temperature range uh, that's not too hot and not too dry. So that's challenging. Uh, And climate change with extreme heat and drought can be really challenging locally for a butterfly. Okay. Um, So so that extreme heat is bad. Extreme cold is bad. So any of these extreme weather events, like what we recently saw in Texas, aren't great. Um, So what's happening to butterflies in Texas right now, if they live there, um, they're probably, they were probably overwintering uh, or hibernating in some form. They could have been as eggs, as larvae, as pupa, or as adults. And they were just getting ready for spring, right? So they were mm-hmm. just starting to ramp up their metabolism. And then they got blasted with a big cold storm. 
And that's hard on them. It's hard once they get sort of warmed up a little bit to start emerge for spring right? and then get blasted again. That's really hard on their physiology. Like it is for everybody. Right. Right. And, and we, so, so we might be seeing a, a decline in the number of new butterflies, uh, emerging this spring. Right. That would be sort of my prediction right now. Um, Well, yeah. And that, that kind of brings us to one of your papers. Um, one of the studies that you and your collaborators just published, which was looking at how these changes are impacting butterflies. And, and before we talk about what you found, you know, you looked at a lot of different species and in a lot of different locations, I think it was 70 different locations. So, so that seems like a really big question to tackle. How did you go about figuring out, like, how do you go about figuring out what's happening when you're thinking about lots of different species in lots of different places? Yeah, I think it's just like everything else. You start with your question. Like, what do we want to know? We wanted to know if um, various land and climate change parameters were affecting butterfly um abundance um okay so we we thankfully we know a lot about butterflies the group there is really talented about understanding how butterflies uh make a living and who they are and then you kind of go okay where's the data for this question in this case like we knew that not a single person could collect this data um there is an example. So we get back to Arch Piro, who I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. as my undergraduate sort of uh, gateway into butterfly world. He's actually on this paper and his data set, which is a transect from um, the Bay Area in California all the way over to the Eastern Sierras. He's been walking or monitoring butterflies in that transect for 40 years. Wow. Um and he was seeing declines. Well, now the question is, is okay, do those scale out across areas. And unfortunately, there's not many arts out there who can do this um, and at, at universities. So, so now we're, we're kind of like, okay. And even with the group, it's like, we still don't have enough bodies to do this. Right. So this is where we crowdsource the monitoring effort. And there's been um, some really good citizen science uh, initiatives through time um, and space across the U.S. Uh, and the one data set we used in particular was the 4th of July butterfly count. And so that is um, a citizen science venture that started, I believe, in the 70s through the Xerxes Society and then has been picked up by the North American Butterfly Association, which is a nonprofit butterfly enthusiast sort of uh, uh, club, for lack of a better word. Um, and they had a data set that that was primarily the one we would compare arts data to. And then we also used iNaturalist data, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a web platform that was been more recently invented. I want to say about 2008 that uh, participants from all over the world can record what they've seen and when they've seen it. Okay. So, all right. So there's a lot to unpack there and I'm going to put a pin in (laughs) in iNaturalist and the 4th of July to circle back to that. But, but first I really want to know, so, okay. So you've got, I mean, one, we, we know now that you're not the only one who likes to go, uh, you know, watch butterflies, which is good for, for science. Right. Um, and so, 
So you've compiled all of this data from all of... Okay, hold on. I got to pause. If you hear a cat walking across or canceling out something, <laughs> it's buttons. Just a moment. Oh, buttons. I know. It's okay, Jeff. I hope you're not hearing background noise. Jeff is running around. <laughs> oh, only a few little clicks here and there, but nothing okay, major. Okay, good, 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 good. On my end, it's just like, wow. <laughs> I have a chainsaw happening outside. And uh, I mean, I, I do record on separate audio tracks so that I can hopefully, you know, remove yeah, any remove any little things. That, things. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So I was, uh, yeah. So data. <laughs> okay. Right. See, where else are we? Uh, right. that was the bug data. Now we got to go to the, like the temperature and the land use data. Right. Right. Okay. And yes. Those, those are remote sensed by satellites basically. So there's the variety of, of sources you can go to, to look at changes in, um, temperature, average temperature and, uh, uh, uh precipitation and, and um, land use change. Okay. So, you know, I wonder, I, I bet not a lot of people realize how much, you know, data is there that we can access. So, and they may not know what remote sensing is. Can you just briefly kind of explain what is remote sensed data? <laughs> remote sensed data is basically um, images or uh, values collected by a sensor, in this case, often a satellite that's circling around the earth. But sometimes a drone or, um, uh, you know, some other sort of um, plane or, or something like that, depending on where you are in the in the atmosphere. Um, and it's taking information about that uh, space okay. um, and just storing it. And then you can it's lots of data. It's it often needs to be wrangled in, in serious ways, meaning to say that um, you need to clean it and modify it, potentially transform it based on, on what your needs are. So let's say it's in, in Fahrenheit, but you really need Celsius or, or it's in meters and you need to transform it to, 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 um, kilometers or, or those sorts of things. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, but these are large data sets and that's where the data science part of my, um, job description comes in where you really have to be kind of familiar. It's Excel loses its mind when it <laughs> looks at this data. It's just too much. It's like, I can't, right. <laughs> can't do it. I so, can't do it. So that's where the data sign where, where you need computational skills or right. tools to help you, um, wrangle and process and turn that data into information that's useful for the question you're asking. Okay. Which brings us back to the question that you guys were asking. And you've got, you've integrated all of this data. You have data on butterflies. Uh, you have data on, on sort of climatic variables and land use and, and all of that. So what is happening? What did you find that's happening to butterflies? Yeah, no. So this was really like, uh, exciting and also a little disheartening for all of us. Cause it's, you know, um, hard when you find out that a lot of species are declining across mm -hmm. the Western U.S. of butterflies. So, so in general, um, we looked across, um, you know, the Western U.S. from the Rockies to, to the Pacific, um, and butterflies aren't doing well, and some of them are doing very poorly. And it means even in wild areas where, you know, there's, we perceive there is not being much human influence. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they're, they're really starting to decline in big ways in the last 10 or 15 years. 
So, um, and that's associated with like the strongest signal we got was actually associated with um, fall warming. So fall temperatures have been increasing um, across the Western U.S., in the past 20 years. And that, that rate of increase has been accelerating recently. Um, so it means it's getting warmer or staying warmer longer. So mm-hmm. summer is kind of bleeding into fall. Um, and that makes it being a butterfly in particular, uh, really hard. Um, so the plants are uh, senescing sooner. So they're not eat good to, as good to eat. And so the butterflies aren't, are not doing as well in terms of their nectar. So the plants aren't blooming, so they can't get snacks. The butterflies can't get snacks. Right. And then also the caterpillars aren't getting the nutrition they need to um, become butterflies or to become pupa or or whatever they're going to overwinter as. Okay. Now, was that was that unexpected? I mean, were there any unexpected findings? Did you, did you set out believing that fall warming was going to be the strongest signal? I think, you know, fall has been sort of, so the short answer is, is that was surprising. Fall was, was surprising to us. We thought it would be spring or summer, honestly. Okay. Um, but those time periods weren't as sort of um, correlated with, with declines as fall was. I think when we took a step back and thought about how insects make a living, which is different than how you and I make a living, mm-hmm. it made sense because drought is so hard for them to deal with. Right. Especially at that sort of important transition, getting ready for winter. Okay. And so, so when we thought about it, it was like, oh yeah, if it stays warmer for longer, that's, that's really hard for them. Okay. Cause they have a hard time with being warm. Right. Right. And, and they, as you already mentioned earlier, they're really sensitive to temperature and humidity. And both of those things are, are being impacted at right. that time of year. Right. So it's getting warmer and it's drier in the fall. Right. So yeah, kind of a bummer if you're a butterfly. Well, well, but you did point out, I mean, I guess it, 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 well, it is a bummer. There's no question about it, but you did point out that not um, all species are being impacted the same way. And so, so I want to talk about that a little bit. And, And you have another paper that was recently published that zeroes in on giant swallowtails and how they're being impacted. So before we kind of dig into that, like, tell us, can you tell us a little bit about giant swallowtails and what's yeah, they're, they're about a them? cool bug that, you know, especially they live mostly in the East and Midwest. Um, you'll see a similar species out West, uh, called the Western giant swallowtail, but, but these guys are, are swallowtails. So they've got these little fancy, um, uh, tails on mm-hmm. their wings that, um, they use, I think, for uh, sexual signaling and things like that. Um, also for predator avoidance. Uh, they're ye- usually yellow and black. It's a very common color pattern in that mm-hmm. group. Uh, this species in particular uh, has done switched over to citrus. So you'll sometimes see it on citrus trees if you have those in your, your um, yard. But by and large, it feeds on other members of the citrus family. Is it a specialist? Um, Does it? Well, I mean, I hesitate to talk about specialist versus generalist. Yeah, it has a more specialized diet than some other butterfly species, but it feeds on, you know, a dozen different species, let's say something about that that we know of. Okay. And, and so how, what did you find about how climate change is impacting them? Well, they, um, 
you know, this is a critter that, uh, you know, is one of the largest butterflies in North America. And so we've kept track of it pretty well. And, it, you know, kind of really a Southeast bug, sort of like middle uh, latitude. And then, and then suddenly in the past 15 years, we've been seeing it farther and farther north. And uh, it turns out, based on this study, that this thing is moving 27 times faster than your average organism north. So it's it's packing up its bags <laughs> and moving, shifting north um, to areas where I think it's been excluded from because it's been too cold, especially in the winter, okay. and it just couldn't quite make it through hibernation. But now that it's warmer, at least more reliably warmer, it's been seen farther north in Canada and Vermont, and New Hampshire and Maine and places where um, they would occasionally see it, but not reliably. Um, so yeah, that's what it's done. And the reason it's been able to do that is because uh, members of, of the the buffet, so different host plants that, that ha- were already there. So mm-hmm. the host plants range wasn't limited by the same envir- uh, winter temperatures. So they were always there. Uh, so the, as soon as that those um, temperature winter temperatures got warmer, the, the swallowtail could just sort of move north quickly. Okay. I, I'm, I'm, pack, I'm now imagining a, a, an explorer swallowtail going, you know, I don't know. I think it's getting a little too hot and a little too dry here for me. I'm going to, you know, pack up my bags and, and head north and, and see if things are better. Yeah. And, you know, part of that too is they're always constant, especially the females looking for, for new, uh, for host plants that don't have eggs on them. Right. So, so, you know, it's like, oh, we can go a little further North and look, look, there's, there's no other eggs on this. And yeah. So do you have a sense of how, how much time this shift has been happening? Like for how long, right? Do we have, okay. Yeah. It's like the past 15 years, things have gotten a little, little, very much uh, like faster. And like probably with everything with climate change is it seems like the past 15 years, things have really picked up the pace in ways that we weren't originally predicting. Um, What's interesting, I think, with this species is it should slow down its northern expansion because you're kind of at the the butterfly and the host plant are now completely overlapping. So unless the host plant can move further north, and it might not be able to because of soil and and other things, uh, competition, um, the butterfly has kind of moved north very quickly and it sort of probably is going to be stuck there for a while. So it's gone as far as it can currently go with all the things that it needs. Right, exactly. And then if the host plants, these and their trees, um, Talia trifoliata is one of them. And I'm trying to remember common hop tree. There okay. we go. <laughs> <laughs> common hop tree. Okay. <laughs> um, it's sort of like, you know, kind of stuck where it's at. So, but if it moves north further, then the, the butterfly will follow pretty quickly. Now, is this presenting a problem for other species of butterfly to suddenly have the giant swallowtail? I, I mean, unless there's no competition for that particular food source, but but is there? Yeah, not really to our knowledge yet. There might be other moth species. So hop trees, um, actually all citrus, uh, don't eat them. Don't eat the leaves. That's just my my take home message there. They have these things um, for anacumarins in them, which bind to DNA and uh, actually make you really light sensitive. If you get it on your skin, I don't know if you've ever like gotten like this weird chemical burn from from 
um, plants, but that's one of the things it does. Okay. Anyways, swallowtails have a special adaptation. So there's not many things that feed on these species. So I don't think there's much there. Uh, you know, you, you run into the thing where they could be bringing in diseases or they could bring in parasitoids, which might have these indirect effects on the local butterflies. But but that still remains to be seen, like okay. how that sorts out. Well, that's good, I guess, for the resident butterfly species that they're not, you know, having to um, c- compete now uh, with uh, with a giant swallowtail who might win. I don't know. I've seen b- know. butterflies fight by pushing and shoving each other, you know, so they're, you know, they can be be aggressive, which most people don't think of butterflies as aggressive, um, but, yeah, but they can yeah. certainly get in a showdown with each other. Yeah. The males in particular will do that with each other. Like they'll defend territories for, mm-hmm. for attracting, like they have what they call lex. So areas where they show off to the females and there are better locations than others. And so the males will often challenge each other. And yeah, as you said, like bump into each other, or beat each other up with their wings. Right. It can be kind of violent being a butterfly. Well, yeah. And, 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 and just as a side note, before I, I sort of take a, I know we're, we're getting close to, I got to let you go. Cause I know you're so busy. Um, but I, you've seen the video I shared. It can be a, a very, you know, cruel world out there for butterflies too. There was a butterfly feeding, um, like you said, doing its little dance or little jig with its feet. And out of nowhere, a honeybee just came and zapped it right in the I don't know. Mm-hmm. Do, do butterflies have a back end? <laughs> rump. In the Vent rump. is what <laughs> it It zapped it right in the rump and this butterfly jolted <laughs> that clearly it felt it. Um, so, uh, you know, they also get bumped by other things uh, sometimes. Yeah. yeah, totally. Like bees can be really possessive of their uh, and let's not even talk about hummingbirds. Oh yes. No. Yeah. We could, we could have a whole nother show about <laughs> the attitude of hummingbirds. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, both of these studies and they're really important, I think for many reasons, but, but also sort of showing how small changes are having big impacts. So when we think about bigger changes, it's just going to, um, you know, that might be why it it seemed kind of disheartening and we're already seeing these changes. But both of these studies use data and information collected by, you know, people that were part of the, I think you said the 4th of July butterfly count and an iNaturalist. So, so we're, you know, people who are interested in, and and care about some of these things can participate. And, and we, you know, citizen science uh, is, is sort of the phrase that's used, but it, what is citizen science, especially for you as a scientist who uses this kind of information? Yeah, no, I mean, it's great to be able to democratize the scientific process. So community or citizen science is sort of this idea that we can um, scale data collection, um, data analysis, even um, dissemination um, by engaging with people who um, are recreationally participating instead of professionally. Yeah. And so that's really exciting. Uh, Butterflies in particular have had a long history of this. This goes back hundreds of years. Uh, where people have, you know, 
been involved with scientific discovery and uh, originally with naming species, but that's been extended to uh, monitoring and understanding behaviors and um, ecology of of butterflies. Um, So that's pretty amazing. Uh, And again, this long history of it, and which has been amplified by new technologies. And those technologies, of course, are are the web and smartphones and cameras on your smartphones, where now we can have sort of data sources that are uh, standardized, integrated, and uh, at scale that we just couldn't do before. Um, So that's pretty exciting to have. Yeah. And why do you think people participate in things like what do you you work with 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 you know the public that's collecting in, in this data and, and what do you hear from them about why they do it well i think you know part of it is the way our our brains work there is something exciting about discovery and sharing and and curiosity that that never goes away. I mean, we certainly see it in children, but adults carry that same passion and and seem to have fewer outlets for that, maybe. Um, so there's that component of it. There's also uh, just the the recreation of being outside, and again, sort of contributing to a greater good, which which speaks to our. our passion for community and connection. Mm-hmm. So I think those are the things that are driving it is sort of the, the, the personal satisfaction, but then the shared experience among people. Um, and technology is sort of unifying that, uh, right. you know, again, the 4th of July butterfly account was well before, um, we had these web platforms and smartphone applications, right. and even good cameras, right. That were accessible for everyone. Um, but it still was able to collect a lot of data and get people involved. And it, it speaks to that, that community. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I'm going to now, I gotta, I gotta talk about the Monarch, uh, because this is, there's the, there's an annual sort of Monarch event, um, that leverages citizen science as well. And, and we talked about people, you know, buying milkweed and planting it. And so, so what is going on with the monarch butterfly? Why is like it so pop? Why is why it so popular? Yes. Why do they yeah, love it so much? Well, you know, you know, like you know, why do people love pandas so much? I think <laughs> part of that is like some animals just are charismatic, and I think the monarch is one of those, and that represents what's cool about the monarch is it's huge migration, how, you know, complicated it's migration. It happens over multiple generations. It's a beautiful bug. Like, let's be honest, that's a pretty bug. Um, (laughs) Not to say there are more pretty butterflies. There are a lot of pretty butterflies out there, but it has a striking pattern Mm -hmm. that, you know, of course it uses to tell everybody that it just tastes bad, but, but it also makes it beautiful. And it's this shared migration, like, like, you know, people, in you know eastern canada know about it as do southern mexico so it's this sort of this phenomenon that connects all of north america and i think that's a little magical and so people pay attention and like the story so there's a nice narrative with that bug and so so we can say maybe that the monarch is the panda of the sky <laughs> the panda of the sky i like that yeah and <laughs> And, you know, it's interesting because I even though I sort of asked that in jest, I will say that um, I had the opportunity to tag 
a monarch butterfly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it was, it was really magical. Like I, (laughs) and I'm sort of like almost embarrassed how much it makes me smile because I can visualize this, this butterfly and I didn't hold it because I don't know how to hold a butterfly, but, but the person in charge held the butterfly and then I was given the little tag and, you know, told very clearly, I don't touch the scales, you know, cause the oils from your fingers can disrupt that and, and make it, you know, it can move them and get and hurt them. And so I had to very carefully put this little tiny sticker, um, with the number. And, and then the hope was that that butterfly was going to migrate and be found in Mexico. So how much have we learned from the, so as special as that was, I did imagine, oh, you're going to travel and somebody else will find you and I'll know what happened to you. And, and I think that maybe, you know, I felt now connected to the story of that butterfly. Um, but how much have we learned from the marking of monarchs? Yeah, I think we've learned you know, a little bit with bark recapture, as you know, it's like always a poor recapture, right? Sure. Don't you're crushing my dreams now. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry. But we have learned some key things. Um, one is that and relevant to where we're at in particular is that Arizona monarchs that pass through Arizona can either go to the Western flyway or the Eastern flyway. Right. So, so we're learning more about where the two flyways may overlap mm-hmm. and and sort of connect with each other. Um, I don't know, listeners out there may know, probably more familiar with the Eastern Flyway, which is, you know, from Eastern Canada all the way down to Central Mexico. There's another flyway out um, in California, mm-hmm. and that extends from the Great Basin, basically, to uh, the coastal California, uh, extending coastal central California near like... Um, uh, Monterey down south to to um, Big Sur or something like that. So there's two flyways. Um, there don't seem to be genetically different, meaning to say that there's enough gene flow between the eastern and western flyways that you know they're not separate populations. Okay. Well, you know, I don't want to discriminate against other butterflies. I want to be really inclusive and just say then that all butterflies are pandas of the sky. Um, and maybe that'll help um, us extend our concern and care for all of them. Um, and unlike pandas, which I always say are an evolutionary dead end, many butterflies are pollinators, as you mentioned, and, and kind of important to have around. So, um Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I think they're important for both the, the plants and then animals that eat them. I'll be honest. Like, yes. Cause there's a lot of hungry animals that need some eggs hungry. with legs. Eggs with legs, man. They're just tasty. Yeah. So, so we have the book, right? The hungry caterpillar, but nobody wants to talk about the hungry animals that eat the caterpillar. Right. The baby chickadees. baby chickadees thank you so much for for being on the show and i feel like i learned so much about butterflies that i'm next time i see one i'm gonna think if it's on a plant that maybe it's smelling a a flower with its feet um so thank you for that and thank you for sharing your research and all of your knowledge with us oh thank you for having me it's been such a pleasure listen folks 
Things are changing and not in a great way, not for butterflies and not for many of us. Work by scientists like Katie Prudick are showing us that even though these changes have been slowly happening right under our noses, they're accelerating. You can be part of the solution and you can be part of the science. If you want to get involved with butterfly monitoring or any animal monitoring, it's just a few clicks away. You can join in the 4th of July butterfly count. You can be part of iNaturalist and eButterfly communities. And if butterflies aren't your jam, well, there's always the Christmas bird count. And next time you see a butterfly dancing on a flower, stop and watch the butterfly smell the flowers. Thanks for listening, everyone, and tune in next week for a powerful interview with award-winning writer Nathaniel Popkin, whose new book, To Reach the Spring, From Complicity to Consciousness in the Age of Eco-Crisis, explores the paradox of being human and caring about the environment. Thanks for supporting the show. Please be sure to follow and share, and hey, even write a review if you have a moment to spare. If you like the show's theme music, well, that's thanks to George Nardo of Luna Recording Studios in Tucson, Arizona. Thanks, George.